Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Day three of the war between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group. Hamas threatens to execute hostages and Israel plans to seize the Gaza Strip. And more American citizens confirmed dead in the ongoing war. What's happening now and how the U.S. is responding? U.S. law enforcement bolsters security to guard against potential threats to Jewish communities across the country, which groups have already been threatened. Pressure to fill the House speakership is mounting amid the war. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy doesn't rule out vying for the gavel again if other Republicans insist. And presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is ditching the Democratic Party to run as an independent. And he says that's not the only thing he's declaring independence from. Terrorist group Hamas is threatening to execute civilian hostages as Israel regains control of southern communities near the border with Gaza in the ongoing war. A warning that some of this footage is graphic. The Hamas terrorist group on Monday warned that it would kill an Israeli hostage every time Israel bombs civilian homes in the Gaza Strip without warning. A spokesperson for Hamas said that the executions will be broadcast with live audio and video. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Monday what Israel will do to its enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. The savage attacks that Hamas perpetrated against innocent Israelis are mind-boggling. Slaughtering families in their homes, massacring hundreds of young people at an outdoor festival, kidnapping scores of women, children and elderly, even Holocaust survivors. Hamas terrorists bound, burned and executed children. They are savages. Israeli authorities on Monday said its forces have re-established control of southern Israel. The Israel Defense Forces is conducting one of the largest airstrikes ever against Hamas in Gaza. The goal is to completely degrade Hamas's military capabilities so that they won't be able to strike Israel civilians again. The country is also implementing a complete siege on the Gaza Strip, blocking the entry of food and fuel. There's still attempts by Hamas and other terrorists to get across the border and get into Israel and to attack in other locations. But the IDF has regained control over all of the Israeli communities. There are no more active terrorists in any of the communities, but there is fighting along the border. To the north, Israeli troops shot and killed several terrorists who crossed into the country from Lebanon. Shelling intensified between Israeli forces and Lebanon's Hezbollah terrorist group, which is backed by Iran. Israel reported over 900 deaths by Monday, most of them civilians. Gaza authorities reported at least 680 Palestinian deaths. I know that the past day has been hard. The price is heavy. I know that there are many questions and much frustration. But the important thing, we are now focusing on going forward with assistance and resolving problems. Qatar says it's currently in talks with Israel and Hamas to swap Israeli women and children held hostage in Gaza. In exchange for 36 Palestinian women and children in Israeli jails, Qatar has been conducting the negotiations in coordination with the U.S. since Saturday night. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. 
Meanwhile, at least 11 American citizens have been killed in Israel. The U.S. is sending weapons to Israel, and the Biden administration is talking with allies. Joining us live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Iris, what do we know about Americans in Israel, and what's the latest in our response? Good afternoon. Good evening to you, Tiff. So in the statement issued just this afternoon, President Biden confirmed that at least 11 Americans have been killed in Hamas attacks against Israel. He added that American citizens still remain unaccounted for and that it is likely that some of them are among those being held by Hamas. And Biden says he's directed his team to work with Israeli counterparts on every aspect of the hostage crisis, including by sharing intelligence and deploying experts. But the Biden administration did say earlier today that it actually has no idea on where these missing Americans are or what condition they are in. And President Biden has spoken with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for multiple times after the conflict began, including on Sunday when he told him that military assistance is on its way. However, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today criticized the Biden administration for unfreezing $6 billion in funds for Iran, saying that has fueled Hamas attacks. Let's take a look. His policy has over only emboldened terrorists. And handing over six billion to Iran only helps the cause. The Biden administration is trying to make clear that none of this $6 billion fund has been allocated and that even if it was, none of it is going to the Iranian regime. All of it is for the Iranian people. However, when it comes to the U.S., the FBI and the Homeland Security Department has made clear that there's actually no threats facing the U.S. homeland as of now. And as President Biden called on other countries to not to take advantage of the current situation, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is in China today, told Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping that China should condemn Hamas. Here's what Schumer said. Let's take a look. I was very disappointed, to be honest, by the foreign ministry, ministry statement that showed no sympathy or support for Israel during these tough, troubled times. The White House told us that President Biden would speak with close allies this afternoon about the developments in Israel. We're still waiting for a formal readout on that discussion. And it's worth noting that President Biden actually had no public events scheduled for today. So it remains to be seen whether in the coming days there will be a more formal opportunity for President Biden to address the death of 11 Americans. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. Cities across the U.S. are preparing for the worst. Since Hamas attacked Israel over the weekend, the FBI has urged local law enforcement to boost security around Jewish institutions. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Fighting between Hamas and Israel isn't affecting security in the U.S. yet. But the FBI and Homeland Security aren't taking any chances. The agencies have issued public safety concern bulletins to state and local law enforcement officials to boost security around Jewish religious institutions, particularly in cities with the largest Jewish communities and histories of anti-Semitic incidents. New York City's Mayor Eric Adams said in a statement that he won't let cowardly terrorists undo peace in Jewish communities. He said he has directed the NYPD to deploy additional resources to Jewish communities and houses of worship citywide to ensure that our communities have the resources they need to make sure everyone feels safe. 
Adams said there was no credible threat to New York City at this time. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has said she's working with officials in New York and Jerusalem to help bring back New Yorkers currently in Israel. She told CNN that New York State Police are coordinating with local law enforcement to ensure safety in Jewish communities. But a rabbi in Salt Lake City said he was forced to stop services Sunday due to a bomb threat. Everybody to calmly please exit the building and go to Tanner Park. Thank you. Members of the synagogue were forced to evacuate. Video footage of the evacuation was posted on Facebook. The congregation's rabbi, Sam Spector, told CNN that his staff received an email saying there was a bomb in the building and that bombs had been placed in other Jewish centers around Utah. While members of the synagogue were upset by the threat, no one was hurt. The Salt Lake City FBI office has said they are aware of the incident, but they have no information of specific or credible threats. Some Jewish organizations are taking their own precautions. The Jewish Federation, which represents over 350 communities across North America, said in an email that they have the largest campaign in history to secure all of their communities. A spokesperson told Insider that their security team has coordinated with local law enforcement and key partners, but currently there are no known credible threats. Tiffany? Is Israel at fault for the Hamas attacks? Why are some leaders calling for restraint in dealing with terrorism? We spoke with the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, who's also a rabbi, for his perspective on the new war. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the show. Glad to be back with you. Rabbi, in response to the surprise attack by Hamas, world leaders, including two members of Congress, are calling on Israel to have restraint in their response. What impact is that kind of rhetoric having on U.S.-based Jews? Well, I think that the, you know, we have to begin with, you know, when they say it, they, they act like they're saying a neutral diplomatic thing, that both sides should exercise restraint. Of course, they only do this after the catastrophic terror atrocity, whatever that might be, which in this case uh, amounts to the largest massacre of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, that's what just transpired in Israel. So when they call for restraint now, they're basically saying that Israel shouldn't do everything it can do to neutralize the Hamas terror organization, to just punish them a little bit and then allow them to regroup, rearm, and find new ways to do new atrocities the next time. Restraint is exactly the wrong answer. Restraint is how you lose wars. Nobody called for restraint with Ukraine. Nobody called for restraint when the United States and the British were bombing Dresden into ruins on their way to defeating the Nazis. And actually, uh, restraint was called fatal restraint. It was pilloried in a documentary about the Vietnam War as how the United States lost the war because the president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, insisted on a policy of restraint. Restraint, you lose wars. They want Israel to lose. And obviously that has an impact uh, on American Jews and on Jews in Israel and on the safety of that entire region. Uh, basically, the, you know, the entire, what the world is doing is creating a hostile climate for Jews. And we see that playing out in America when you've got demonstrations in the street and even from a group of Harvard University students making declarations in support of the Hamas terror organization.
And Rabbi, you mentioned that restraint is not the correct answer. And to your point, Hamas is designated a terrorist organization by the U.S. and U.N. What is the correct answer here? What is the correct response? I, I think at this point it's abundantly clear that Hamas, uh, it has genocide in its charter. It cannot coexist beside Israel. Uh, this has proven it beyond, beyond measure. Uh, this is uh, what just happened is Israel's 9-11. Though when you consider that it is a country of only 9 million people as compared to the 330 million people in the United States, it's as if 40,000 Americans had died. I mean, that is the proportion of the tragedy, that literally almost everyone in Israel knows somebody who was murdered just a few days ago. And as a result of that, you don't have a, a society anymore that is that is willing to put up with this delusional pipe dream of, of living side by side with Hamas, the terror organization, and its Palestinian Authority cheering section. And Rabbi, you did bring up the Harvard. So there are 31 Harvard organizations who are blaming Israel for the Hamas attack. They're saying that Israel has, quote, forced Palestinians to live in an open-air prison for over two decades. Give us a sense of what's at the root here. Why are we seeing this attack unfold now? Uh, you know, well, of course, that narrative has been developing over time. Um, but, it, I mean, it is simply moronic. It's imbecilic. These people have never learned anything about Middle Eastern history or are deliberately lying about it. Because what actually happened is that Israel, in 2006, deliberately disengaged from Gaza, uprooted thousands of Jews from their homes, pulled out of that territory, said, here, we're going to give the Palestinian Arabs a section to call their own where they can develop a nice civil society. In fact, they left behind things like greenhouses that the Jews had painstakingly developed and left them behind for the Arabs, who promptly destroyed them. The territory was very shortly thereafter taken over by Hamas. In fact, Hamas was elected to leave them to lead them. This was democratically. The people of Gaza chose Hamas, the genocidal terror organization, to lead them. So that just sends a message of its own, obviously. But the, the idea that this was an open-air prison, first of all, that never happened. There are luxury hotels in Gaza. There are markets filled with, with food. There's all kinds of opportunities for people in Gaza. But second of all, it's not Israel that's controlling all the borders. Egypt has a border with Gaza as well. They only demonize Israel for doing what Egypt does as well, because only if they enter Israel will they find Jews to kill. It reminds us that half the architects of Hitler's final solution had PhDs, were academics. There is nothing wrong with saying a person has a high academic education and is a genocidal barbarian. And each and one of these Harvard student organizations just demonstrated that to be true. Because the entire narrative they presented was inexcusable, anti-Semitic, drawn from the Nazi era, blames Jews for the fact that Jews are being killed. It's all the classic hate narrative that Jews have heard for thousands of years. And Rabbi, given all of that, the U.S. has also confirmed that at least nine Americans were killed. The U.S. is now deploying an aircraft carrier to the region. What must the U.S. do now to help Israel? Well, I think that the, the, the carrier is simply there as a show of alliance and force. It is saying to other allies in the region, don't get involved. There's already been an incursion from Lebanon, but the Lebanese really can't afford to get involved with Israel right now. 
This has to remain between Israel and Hamas. The largest mobilization that Israel's ever done of its reservists in its history just happened this week. Uh, there is nobody really that wants to tussle with the Israelis right now, but the Americans being there saying, don't, don't get us involved. We don't want you to be involved. Well, that's a very important thing. The other thing is that the Americans need to stay the course. It's great to ally with Israel when the Israelis are the victims. But what about is when Israel becomes the victors? Israel is about to enter Gaza. There's going to be a ground war. And because it's going to be a ground war, lots of innocent people are going to die. That's what happens in ground war conflicts. This is something that Hamas brought upon itself. This is something that Gazans brought upon themselves by electing Hamas to lead them and then doing nothing to stop them as they launched one terror attack after another against Israel leading up until this day. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The war in Israel is creating a new dynamic as House Republicans feel the pressure to elect a new speaker. NTD's Melina Weiskopf joins us from Capitol Hill with more. Melina, what is the feel in Congress now that this war is happening? Hi, Tiff. Yeah, good to be with you tonight. So right now, the halls of Congress are pretty quiet, pretty slow, but not for long as this hectic week starts up with that drama around electing a new House Speaker unfolds. And like you mentioned, Tiff, yeah, there is some new dynamics and new pressure with this war in Israel now. Some Republicans are now expressing a sense of urgency for the House to get it together so they can pass more funding to Israel, specifically to replenish the Iron Dome system. Now, others are even wanting to uh, push a resolution to uh, condemn the attacks in Israel, even without a speaker present, saying they need to hurry and take action so that there's some unified response from, from Congress to this war as soon as possible. Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, along with his Democrat counterpart, is pushing this resolution, trying to figure out how they can do this without a speaker uh, sitting in that position. And this it's pretty complicated right now, as expressed by Congressman Bruce Westerman, who I spoke with earlier today. Take a look at what he had to say about these growing frustration he has. And that's the reason why you need stability and why you need to govern so that when things like this come up, you can react to it and not trying to figure out, you know, parliamentary procedure. What parliamentary procedure do you do where you can even put a resolution on the floor to condemn the attacks? Ever since we've been without a speaker is the thing we need more than a person as a plan. And with that said, under these new set of, set of circumstances, there's also some news emerging that some Republicans want to reinstate former Speaker Kevin McCarthy to that position, although it's unclear how likely or possible that would be right now because that would require those eight Republicans who previously voted to oust McCarthy to com take a complete left turn and, uh, of course, vote to reinstate him, which right now it's unclear how likely or possible that is. With that said, though, the former Speaker did hold a press conference today taking the same style that he used to take when he was acting as speaker, condemning the attack in Israel and also when he was directly asked if he would re-enter this race for the speakership, he didn't rule it out. Here's what McCarthy had to say. That's a decision by the conference. I'll allow the conference to make whatever decision. Whether I'm speaker or not, I'm a member of this body. I know what history has had and I can lead in any position it is. 
Now, as for those two leading candidates, of course, we know Chairman Jim Jordan and uh, Majority Leader Steve Scalise. They're the top two candidates right now uh, vying for that speakership. They, they both have responded to the Israel situation, saying that that would be one of their top priorities to send aid to Israel should they be elected as speaker. But as, that bi as for that big question of who is going to take that position, well, Republicans are holding a meeting tonight so they can hopefully discuss that and get closer to making that choice. They do have their candidate forum set for tomorrow and then on Wednesday. They're set to hold an internal vote to hopefully rally behind one individual before they bring them to the floor for a full floor house vote that would be public. They're trying to do this internally first so that they show some sense of unity when they do finally come out to the public for that vote later today. But this timeline could move up considering the level of urgency and pressure now surrounding with this uh, new Israel that just this new war that just broke out in Israel. Melina, thank you for that update. Today marks a potential turning point in a 2024 presidential race. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. took to the stage in Philadelphia, where he announced he will run as an independent. NTD's Jason Perry attended the event. And that's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. addressed hundreds outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, known as the birthplace of America. And then he went a step further than just declaring independence from political parties. I'm here to join you in making a new declaration of independence for our entire nation. We declare independence from the corporations that have hijacked our government, from the mercenary media that is here to, to fortify all of the corporate orthodoxies from their advertisers and to urge us to hate our neighbors and to fear our friends. And he explained what he meant. And finally, we declare independence from the two political parties. We declare independence from these corrupting powers because they are incompatible with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and we heard from some people who attended the event to get their thoughts on Kennedy's departure from the Democratic Party. But uh, I said that if he uh, goes independent, I'm voting for Kennedy. Yeah, I was a Democrat before I voted for Trump. I turned a Republican and I said after the last four years, I'm going independent because both parties are not for me. So he has the core values. So I think it's a smart choice that he switched over to independent just so he's not constantly bickered by the Democratic Party. Kennedy acknowledged that other candidates in the past have also become independent, but he said this time it'll be different because the independent will win. If you want to watch Kennedy's full speech, you can visit NTD.com. Jason Perry, NTD News, Philadelphia. Turning now to Afghan earthquakes, more than 2,400 people have died after the deadly tremor struck northwestern Afghanistan on Saturday. That's according to Taliban officials. Humanitarian efforts from the United Nations are underway. We've deployed assessment teams and we are providing emergency shelter, supplies, blankets, warm clothes, food, hygiene kits, water buckets, chlorine and dignity kits to those who need it. The 6.3 magnitude quakes toppled Herat province early Saturday morning, marking one of the world's deadliest earthquakes this year. Villagers and rescuers are now digging through the rubble to search for the 500 people who are still missing. 
Hospitals, many under-equipped, are overwhelmed by more than a thousand injured patients. The Taliban is now asking for more aid as the country struggles to supply quake survivors with the remedy they need. Coming up, final words. Parents whose children are now missing after Hamas terrorists attacked a music festival describe the last phone conversations they had with them. What long-term strategies will Israel adopt to protect its citizens from future aggression? We speak with a senior editor from Newsweek for his analysis. And the mother of a California woman is detained in China for her faith. A U.S. representative is now calling on the Secretary of State to help free her. More when we come back. Welcome back. Continuing with our coverage of crisis in Israel, the Supernova Music Festival in southern Israel turned into a violent bloodbath when Hamas terrorists attacked without warning. Parents whose children are now missing described the last phone conversations they had with them during the attack. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Young Israelis were enjoying themselves at the Supernova Music Festival to celebrate the end of the holidays. When out of nowhere, Hamas fighters started attacking, murdering and kidnapping the partygoers. Don't let them eat, drink, erase everything there. No water, no electricity, no food. An Israeli mother lashes out against Hamas after her son went missing after the attack. Before he went missing, her 24-year-old son named Oz called her to tell her he was shot in the hand and chest. We have no strength for the suffering. What is happening here in what country? I want my child. Victims tried to hide, but many ended up kidnapped killed or missing. She called us and said, Mommy, we were bombed. They shot at us. The car was shot. We cannot drive. Everybody was shot. They were bleeding. And she was talking to me and said, Mommy, help us. We don't know what to do. Israeli mother Mirev Ganen has five kids, one of which was at the party. She says her daughter was bleeding and about to lose consciousness as she was trying to escape. She is still missing. They are talking Arabic. They told them, lay down with their face to the ground, with their faces one next to the other. Hold your hands together. Don't even breathe. Stop your breathing. Yuri David is the father of two missing girls. He had a phone connection with them during the attack, where he heard Arabic voices ordering them to lie down. <laughs> I heard four breaths like that, and after that, she didn't answer me anymore. Israeli soldiers fire rifles into the air in honor of a soldier who died fighting Hamas near the festival. Hundreds of mourners gathered to attend the funeral. 
44-year-old Colonel Roy Levy was killed as he led his forces into battle. The Israel Defense Forces says he was the first into the battle to save citizens who were besieged in their homes. Around 10 Palestinian terrorists were killed in the exchange. He is one of the most senior Israeli officers killed in combat during the attacks. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. How will Israel respond over the long term to prevent and deter future attacks on its citizens? And how might the U.S. become involved? We spoke with a senior editor from Newsweek for his analysis. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Josh, we're seeing reports compare what's unfolding in Israel to 9-11 in the States, as in the worst intelligence failure of the time. Now, 9-11 launched the U.S. into the 20-year war in Afghanistan. What do you see in terms of Israel following this attack? Well, look, um, let me first start by saying that uh, what happened this weekend is unbearable. It is unspeakable. Um, my fiance is Israeli. She was born there. Virtually all of her family still lives there. One of her brothers lives about five miles from Gaza. I mean, I cannot possibly explain to, to, to people what this feels like to have gone through this weekend during Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, Jewish holy day, over a holiday as well, over Simchat Torah, a day that religious Jews do not even use their phones to like let loved ones know that they are okay. And this was an this was a truly unprecedented land, sea, and air invasion. Obviously, it is the Iranian regime, top to bottom, that was planning these attacks, that was coordinating these attacks with Hamas. We saw the Wall Street Journal later on Sunday confirm that that is the case. Israeli intelligence hasn't quite confirmed that, but all it takes is, all it takes is is a quick look at the sophistication of these joint land, sea, and air attacks. This is different in kind, not in degree, different in kind than anything Hamas has ever done since they took over the Gaza Strip back in 2007 after a bloody war with the Palestinian Authority. And Israel has no choice whatsoever to do what they should have done a very long time ago, which is a sustained operation in Gaza to get as many civilians out as possible, but stay in there for as long as needs to happen to demolish any and all infrastructure that even remotely smacks of jihadist infrastructure. What Hamas does is they put rocket launchers, they put all sorts of, of, of weapons, the terror tunnels, they put it in mosques, they put it in schools. They are known to use children and women and elderly as human shields under the, under the international laws of war. Every single death of a civilian in that situation is at the feet of Hamas. Israel is going to have to essentially raise most of Gaza to the ground. That is what they are going to have to do. It is going to be ugly. There are going to be terrible images here. But unfortunately, it is what has to be done in order for there to be any peace and stability in the region. And here's the key point. In any, in, for there to be any kind of last and durable peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves, Hamas has to go. Hamas is, is an absolute obstacle that you cannot possibly get around other than full eradication of all of their leaders, all of their members, and all of their infrastructure. They are no different than ISIS or any other group. So the fight is going to be in Gaza right now. Obviously, Hezbollah getting in from Lebanon could dramatically complicate the picture. We have a hostage crisis right now. I expect Mossad to start trying to take out the heads of Hamas in Doha, Qatar, is where most of them live. I would expect some targeted assassinations inside Qatar. Certainly some targeted assassinations, if not more so, inside Iran itself, inside Tehran. But for now, for now, even holding aside the intelligence failure, which we're going to have to assess as well, the Israelis are going to have to get to the bottom of that, 
Right now, the focus is on securing the Israeli homeland, reestablishing control over the borders, operational control, and then raising Gaza to the ground while protecting as much civilian life as possible. And Josh, to your point, Hamas is designated a terror organization by the U.S. and U.N. How significant is the timing of this attack, almost 50 years to the day since the Yom Kippur War? The timing of this attack, from my perspective, is twofold. One is it is, as you just said, almost 50 years to the day since the Yom Kippur War. So clearly the timing was intended to coincide with that. The last time the much vaunted Israeli security and intelligence apparatus failed as much as it did this weekend was 50 years ago in the Yom Kippur War. The other element here of the timing that I think you have to understand here, and I, 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 I kind of glommed onto this immediately. I saw Senator Tom Kahn of Arkansas has been saying the same thing. I think this is, this is absolutely right is what is going on here is the Iranian regime using Hamas as a convenient conduit is trying to blow up the peace deal that has been emerging in recent months and was set to come along between Israel and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is the most important Arab country in the Sunni Arab world for any number of reasons. They are the custodians of the holy sites in Mecca and Medina. They carry a lot of sway. We saw the interview with Mohammed bin Salman and Brett Bayer over in Saudi Arabia recently. They got a lot of attention where he was very optimistic about the prospects of peace with Israel. Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu used a lot of his comments at the United Nations recently talking about this piece, Iran has no interest whatsoever in Israel further integrating into the Arab world and continuing the circle of peace that President Trump and Netanyahu helped usher in with the Abraham Accords in 2020 with the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan making peace with Israel. So that is the other element of the timing here is Iran is really, really trying to escalate a hot war and to drive a narrative such that the Saudis would feel too pressured and then would not be able to join the Abraham Accords and make peace with Israel. And Josh, zooming in on that peace deal, how much of what we're seeing unfolding in Israel right now is due to perceived weakness of the U.S. on the global stage? Well, unfortunately, all of these dots connect with each other. Um, and to give very to give one very concrete example of that, and you can very clearly see in these videos and these images and these clips, you can very clearly see Hamas jihadists wielding American rifles. Now, historically speaking, Palestinian Arabs would typically hold Russian-based AK platforms. Well, where are they getting those U.S. weapons from? Well, it, it clearly seems that, that they're getting those weapons likely from Afghanistan, from the botched U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan, the Taliban obviously hoovered up all of the American weaponry, the American vehicles, the missiles, the small arms, the firearms, everything left behind. And it appears that the Taliban, which earlier today said that they are now threatening to actually join the fight on behalf of Hamas in this war, the Taliban seems to have now sent those guns to Gaza via the Iranian regime as an intermediary, via the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a, a terrorist organization as well. And then the IRGC in turn shipped them over to Gaza through Hamas. So it's a whole mess. All these situ all these terrible foreign policy blunders all connect with each other. I find it hard to believe that the Russians and perhaps the Chinese did not have some knowledge in advance here. Russia and, and Iran are close. Even the head of Hamas actually was uh, Ismail Yania. He was actually in Moscow within the past few months. Um, he's obviously very close to the Iranian regime as well, but he was but he was in Moscow. 
Now, the Russia situation is a little complicated because Israel and Russia also are known to get along just fine. If it's confirmed that Russia had knowledge here, then that would be a devastating blow to the Israeli-Russian relationship. But as of now, what we know is that this was an Iranian-based attack simply using Hamas as a convenient conduit. And given all that is unfolding there, what must the U.S. do now? So the bulk of the fighting, obviously, is going to be Israel. Um, the Israeli military is very powerful. They are going to do what needs to be done. Israel has never once asked, ever, in the entire history of Israel, for anyone to fight a war on their behalf. They've never asked for a single American soldier. So there's no need for that. However, the fact that there are American hostages among the hostages taken in Gaza, I think, does accentuate the need for extremely close intelligence, security, coordination, planning. I mean, the CIA and Mossad, I'm sure, are on the phone with each other 24 at this point, trying to figure out how to extract those hostages. But other than that, at a bare, at the barest of bare minimums, the United States, the Biden administration, has to stop pathologically flirting with the world's number one state sponsor of jihad, which is the Iranian regime. The Biden administration has been abysmal, of course, in this regard. They have been absolutely abominable, most recently by shipping off five Iranian prisoners who committed terrible crimes, along with $6 billion in ransom to Iran to free six Americans, that coming at a price of $1.2 billion per hostage. Many in the in the Obama-Biden foreign policy orbit are, are pathologically obsessed with the idea of re-entering the Iran nuclear deal, thus giving money and, and potentially, God forbid, nuclear weaponry to this fanatical Islamist genocidal regime in Tehran there. So the United States should basically be sanctioning the crap out of out of Iran, out of Hamas, putting the most, the most stringent, strictest terror financing, money laundering laws known to mankind in place there. One other thing that I think the United States very much should do, the country of Qatar is a very thorny country here. Qatar is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. They might actually be the wealthiest country in the world per capita. They are known to try to kind of win over many in D.C. Uh, sure enough, just last year, I think it was, or a year or two ago, the United States named Qatar a major non-NATO ally. The leaders of Hamas live in Doha, Qatar. So what the United States really should do is use its leverage, including the fact that there is a massive U.S. airbase, Al-Udaid airbase, inside Qatar. They should use their leverage to try to pressure Qatar into giving up the heads of Hamas into into basically giving them up to face their crimes against humanity. So that would be a very kind of a keen role for the United States to play that is way short of boots on the ground or anything smacking of that. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Looking next at China, a California congresswoman has sent a letter to the Biden administration condemning the Chinese regime and asking for help from the State Department. She's calling for the release of a Californian's mother who has been held in China for almost a year because of her faith. Representative Barbara Lee condemned the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP's, arbitrary detention and human rights abuses against Falun Gong adherent Kong Qingping. In a letter to U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on September 29, 2023, Li asked that the secretary contact his Chinese counterparts and the associated judicial agencies in the strongest terms to secure the release of Kong, who is currently incarcerated in China for her faith. Li stated, Ms. Kong practices Falun Gong and was taken into custody without just cause for peacefully exercising her religious beliefs. Consequently, I have deep concerns regarding the well-being of Ms. Kong during her confinement by the authorities of the People's Republic of China, PRC. 
Kong's daughter, Liu Zhitong, who lives in California, has been working tirelessly to rescue her mother since the CCP arrested her on October 22, 2022. Her mother's most recent hearing was in September this year, but it was postponed because she was not feeling well and had high blood pressure. The court hearing this time lasted about two hours. During the court hearing, the prosecutor Xiao Huiji and her assistant ignored the evidence provided by our attorney to prove my mother's innocence. When it was over, they said they still have evidence, so they will schedule another hearing. Liu says she still hasn't heard from her mom. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a peaceful cultivation based on the universal principles of truth, compassion, and tolerance. After the introduction of Falun Dafa in 1992, the practice gained an estimated 100 million practitioners in China. Liu said since her mother started practicing Falun Gong in 2004, her once ill-tempered mother was able to restore her relationship with her mother-in-law and sister-in-law, which had caused much bitterness in the family. After Liu saw how the practice of Falun Gong improved her mother's life both emotionally and physically, she was confident of her mother's choice and fully supportive of her practice. Last November, she and other Falun Gong practitioners rallied at San Francisco's Chinese consulate, calling for their family members' release. Coming up, a former NBA star has some harsh words for the politicians as well as Black Lives Matter supporters who've been silent on the Israeli attacks. And in the NFL, no Taylor Swift appearance this week, though you could say the same for some team defenses. We'll look at the stars from week five when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Hamas terrorist group is threatening to publicly execute Israeli hostages, while Israel plans a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. Eleven Americans are confirmed dead, among the 1,700 total. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill weighed their options to provide financial and military assistance to Israel, but their power is limited as the Speaker's chair remains vacant. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is now running for president in 2024 as an independent. He said that the Democratic National Committee is rigging the party's primary elections. Former NBA star Amari Stoudemire reacted to the disturbing news that came out of Israel this weekend in a social media post on Sunday. The six-time All-Star called out politicians who are silent on the matter, as well as Black Lives Matter activists. The Hamas kidnapping children, putting them in cages, killing women, killing the elderly. That's some coward That's cowardly. And for all y'all Black Lives Matter who ain't saying nothing, well, let me figure out exactly what happened before I say anything. you. Figure out what? It ain't never been cool to kidnap kids and put them in cages. Ain't never been cool to kill women and, and elderly. Never been. No matter where you're from, what you represent, what tribe you for, don't matter. After retiring from the NBA, Stoudemire played professionally in Israel, where he converted to Judaism. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. 
Dave, last night's Dallas-San Francisco game was expected to be the most entertaining game of the week, but it was a blowout instead. What happened to Dallas? I'm wondering that myself. You know, they've been a little hit or miss this year. You know, they absolutely dominated the Jets, the Giants, the Patriots. Somehow they lost the Cardinals, and they were completely exposed last night to San Francisco. Uh, now, this is also surprising given that San Francisco ended their season last year. You always remembered who eliminated you from the playoffs. Now, the 49ers looked great, of course. Brock Purdy looked great. Uh, Christian McCaffrey at running back, he's looking so good. They're right there with Philadelphia as contenders in the NFC. And now Purdy was the very last pick in the 2022 NFL draft, yet he's thriving in a league where several former first-round picks are struggling. What does that say about the scouting in the NFL? Uh, it's still a crapshoot. You know, quarterback, I would venture to guess, is the toughest position to scout uh, in football. You know, most uh, college quarterbacks can make all the throws, but it's what you do in the pocket. Like, how quickly can you read the defense, go through your progressions, you know, look at your receivers, can you move some defenders, and then all while avoiding the pass rush. And this all takes place in two, two to three seconds. Very difficult to do. You know, he's not the only underdog to do this, though. You know, Tom Brady was a six-round pick. Tony Romo went undrafted. Really, the list goes on, I would say. And now we've talked NFL, but have yet to mention Taylor Swift. Were you disappointed she didn't show in Minnesota yesterday? You know, a little bit. You know, that was actually the first thing I wanted to see when I was checking out the Chiefs highlights. But, you know, as far as being surprised or disappointed, I would say the Bills losing and not being able to run ball, their ball against Jacksonville. That was surprising. The Patriots getting blown out at home 34 to nothing right after they got beat badly by Dallas last week. They're now just 1-4. and four. Uh, You know, this is... This is a franchise that won their division 17 out of 18 times with Tom Brady. Uh, at this point, they haven't won it since he left. It's almost like a couple decades ago when Michael Jordan left the Chicago Bulls. I will grant there's a little bit more season left though in football. And as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Well, thank you, Tiff. Coming up, Fleet Week returns to San Francisco. The week-long event celebrates the U.S. military with air shows, ship tours, art, and more. Stay tuned for that after the break. Welcome back. One of the biggest events of the year in San Francisco, Fleet Week, has been hosting military showcases and concerts for the past seven days. NTD's Jason Blair brings us more on the festivities. Air shows, ship tours, art exhibits, and more. In one of the city's most popular annual events, Fleet Week is wrapping up this year in San Francisco. The first San Francisco Fleet Week was 42 years ago in 1981. The event is now considered a model for Fleet Weeks across the country by the Department of Defense. For eight days, there are various activities spread throughout the city. Some main attractions include ship tours, a ship parade, concerts, and of course, the Blue Angels Air Show. This is my fourth Fleet Week in San Francisco, and it just gets, it keeps getting better uh, year after year. We're just not all out there, you know, in wars. We're not out there just always trading like we do good for the community as well. The event brings in about $10 million for the city and provides a unique opportunity for the military and the public to interact in a fun and festive environment. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. 
If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.